little 25-verse, one-chapter book in the New Testament called the Book of Jude. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles there, page 1,405, if you're using a Bible under the seat in front of you. Second to last book in the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word reverently and expectantly. Lord, we know that there's such encouragement in studying your word. And there's such responsibility. Tonight we come ready for duty, ready to receive orders. You're the commander. You're our general. You're the king. You're the master. And so we're ready to serve you. We're ready to understand what you want from us. And we want to obey. So I pray that you'd bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are really taking a deep dive into this little letter. Last week, we looked at the first two verses, just the opening salutation, the greeting. Remember, we saw that this letter was written by Jude, the youngest half-brother of Jesus, We saw last week that Jude wrote this letter to Christians in general. We saw that wonderful little blessing that he prayed over them, that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied to them. This this evening, we're going to go just through the next two verses, verses 3 through 4. And let me just tell you that these are the key verses for the entire book. These are the verses that unlock the theme for the whole book. It's in these two verses that we discover the reason why Jude wrote this letter. So these are critical verses. So let's read them very carefully. Verse 3, Jude says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turned the grace of our God into lewdness. And deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So you notice that Jude had a change of heart when he set out to write this letter. Originally, he wanted to write a nice little devotional. I think he wanted to write a letter that was going to be very encouraging to Christians in general. He was going to write, as he says, some wonderful truth concerning our common salvation as Christians. And I think that would have been a fantastic letter. I think that would have been a wonderful letter. 
That phrase, common salvation, very beautiful, loaded with truth. In fact, just sort of camp out on that for just a bit tonight. Common salvation. The word salvation, beautiful word, it means deliverance, rescue. It speaks of somebody who's in danger, somebody who's about to be killed or destroyed. And yet they're rescued, they're delivered, they're saved. It makes you think of someone who's being saved from drowning. They're stuck in a car, can't get out, they're about to drown. The rescuer comes, delivers them, saves them. It would make you think of someone who's trapped in a fire. And the first responder shows up, and there's rescue. Beautiful, beautiful word, salvation. Delivered, saved from certain peril. So salvation in Christianity is an amazing concept. The Bible teaches that mankind is in a perilous condition. Now, God made us. God loves us. God put us in the garden. But you remember, God created us with the free will, with the ability to make choice. And mankind rebelled in the garden. Man sinned. And sin has destroyed the human race. Sin has brought all the misery, all the turmoil, all the violence, everything about it. And sin puts us on this ledge way over here. We're sinful. God's on this ledge over here. He's holy. He's without sin. He's perfect. Our sin separates us from God. We're separated by a chasm that's too wide to jump. Our sin deserves death. Our sin deserves punishment. Our sin deserves condemnation. We are in danger of hellfire because of our sin. But God is a God of grace. God has provided salvation. And he did that by sending a savior, a rescuer. God sent his son, Jesus. Jesus, the perfect one, sent to die on the cross for the sins of the world, to take the price, to take the penalty, the punishment of death and condemnation for sinful people. He took it and he rose again the third day. And the scripture now says that he can save you. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he becomes your bridge through the cross where now you are joined with God and you're given eternal life. By the way, this is a beautiful diagram. The navigators came up with this years ago and there's different variations. I can't tell you, I've drawn this picture hundreds of times on paper napkins in coffee shops, restaurants, as I share the gospel and I share the wonders of salvation. I've, I've, I've drawn this diagram hundreds of times on whiteboards right there in our church office as people come in for counseling. It's just such a beautiful way to describe what Jesus did and how he 
bridges the gap. And salvation is the greatest miracle. When Jude says common salvation, he's not saying that it's cheap. That's cheap. It's common. No, it's valuable. Your salvation is the most important thing that you can have. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, concerning Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. I've, I've always loved that verse because it says when Jesus saves you, he saves you to the uttermost. You're as saved as saved can be when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says when you put your faith in Christ, and for many of you, you've done this in the past, you were saved from the penalty of sin. You are currently being saved from the power of sin in your life by the Holy Spirit. And one day in the future, you're going to be saved from the very presence of sin. You are saved completely, wholly, entirely, always, forever, permanently, not one missing piece. Your salvation is amazing. So when Jude mentions common salvation, he's talking about a salvation that is in common. One way. There's only one way. There's only one way for salvation. And that is through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God who paid the price. Acts chapter 4 says, there is salva- Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Speaking of Jesus Christ. So it's one way. And it's common in the sense that that one way is available to everyone. Everyone gets saved the same way. There's not one way for Jews to be saved and another way for Gentiles to be saved. There's not one way for rich people to be saved and another way for poor people. There's not one way for children and one way for adults. There's not one way for people who live good, respectable lives and another way for those who spend their lives in prison. One way, available to all, regardless of condition. And then when he says it's common, it's because it's shared by all Christians. The word for common is really, in the Greek, koinonia. It speaks of that special fellowship that Christians have. If you're a born-again Christian, you are in a bond and in a fellowship with every Christian who has ever lived throughout all of church history. You're sharing the most wonderful thing that you can possibly imagine in the family of God, salvation. So, yeah, he could have wrote a letter that expanded on all of that. And I'm sure it would have been fantastic. There's so much to understand about salvation. In fact, the Greek word for salvation is uh, soteria. And if you go to seminary, you'll take a whole class called soteriology, the study of salvation. So you could spend a lot of time 
studying the rich nature of salvation. And Jude could have written an amazing book on it. Thankfully, other folks like Paul wrote books. And I'll tell you, you want a treatise on Christian salvation? Study the book of Romans. But Jude, while planning to write on this, a nice devotional, couldn't. He had to change the subject. He had to change course. Breaking news hit. An emergency hit. He became aware of something and he needed a response from Christians. So instead of being a nice little devotional type letter, he wrote a call to action. He wrote a call to war. Verse 3, it says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, instead I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Such an important sentence. I want to really pick that apart. We are called to contend earnestly. Now, in the Greek language, you can't get anything more stronger stronger word than a struggle. This is a a Greek word, epi-agonyatsomai. Agonyatsomai, we get our word agon from that agony, the struggle, the big fight. And this is emphasized, epi-agon. We are called to fight. We are called to struggle. And in fact, this is a word that comes from the world of athletics, and it actually comes from the wrestling match. Wrestling. I can't think of a more exhausting or physically demanding sport than wrestling. Now, I'm not talking about this stuff. The WWWF. And, I mean, okay, they're doing some cool things, but it's all show, right? It's drama. I'm talking this. This is the word. This is wrestling like in high school. This is wrestling on the collegiate level. This is Olympic wrestling. This is a real sport. And it is agonizing, my friend. Anybody here wrestle? Wow, we, we had a couple crazy people. No, I'm just kidding. Those were, they were the crazy people in my high school, though, man. Those guys were always running, always trying to lose weight, always trying to make their weight. And they had to have been in the best shape imaginable because they agonized. They fought. This is the word here. Jude is calling Christians... To contend earnestly, to engage in battle earnestly, to defend. To defend what? I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, what does Jude mean by that? What's the faith? Well, it's not your personal faith. 
Although you need personal faith to become a Christian. You put your personal faith in Jesus Christ. You come to the Lord for yourself. And by faith, you put your trust in him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. And at that point, you become saved. But this is not your personal faith. This is a different type of faith. So let me just show you a few other examples in the scripture. Acts 6 says, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the what? To the faith. Romans 1, Paul says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. Colossians chapter 1, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to Timothy, a true son in the faith. So we're supposed to contend, struggle, defend, champion the faith. So in all that context, what does the faith refer to? Well, it refers to the body of truth that makes up the orthodox Christian system of belief. All of the doctrines that make up the Christian faith. The essential truths of orthodox Christianity that all genuine Christians hold in common. I love this definition. The faith is the essential doctrines of the Christian faith is put forward by the apostles, which we now have in the closed canon of the New Testament. So all of the accepted orthodox Christian doctrines, that's the faith, the creation, the fall of man, separation, judgment, the coming of Jesus, His death, resurrection, ascension, grace, the second coming, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the church, baptism, communion, fellowship, the church's relationship to Israel, the common salvation that we have, like we just spent some time talking about, and the moral demands of Scripture. The moral demands of the Christian life. All that in biblical revelation. That's what we're supposed to fight for. The faith. And there's a very, very important detail here I don't want you to miss. I find it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. You know what Jude is saying there? The faith has been delivered. All the doctrines. Jude wrote this letter sometime between 65 and 70 AD. If he wrote it in 70 AD, think about that. 38 years only after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended. Within 40 years. Jude writes this letter and says, all the doctrines, all of Orthodox Christianity, 
has been delivered. Signed, sealed, delivered. And of course, you know, the apostles were very active during that time. And it was during that time that they wrote their doctrine in letters that made it into the New Testament. So gang, we have the faith that's been once delivered in our New Testament. As of 70 AD, this is what we protect then. We don't allow anybody to add to this. And we don't subtract from it either. This is what we fight for. So a guy by the name of Muhammad, around 600 AD, he's living around Mecca, near a mountain called Hira. And he begins to hear voices. And he goes and he meditates in a cave somewhere, and he meets the angel Gabriel. And the Gabriel gives him all kinds of instructions, and he writes down all these instructions. And he has more revelations, and they write down more instructions. And from that comes the holy book called the Quran. To be rejected. The Christian faith is closed. It's been once delivered. Beware of anybody who comes with visions. In 1820, a guy by the name of Joseph Smith also begins to hear voices and have visions. And he gets visited by an angel and he receives these golden plates and he begins writing and he produces a book called the Book of Mormon and all of that to be rejected. Jude says the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. A few years later, 1870, a guy by the name of Charles Taze Russell begins to get all kinds of new revelation and decides to write a book called The Watchtower and another version of the Bible. And he's the founder of Jehovah Witnesses. New revelation. You can't add. That's to be rejected. We have the closed faith. We have the doctrines complete. They are in our New Testament. And we are to defend them. The strongest language that Jude can use Contend earnestly, he says. And by the way, the, the, the tense there of contend earnestly is not a one-time deal. It's like this is the consistent practice. This is the consistent practice of the church. They had to contend earnestly way back in 70 AD when Jude wrote this letter. They've been having to contend earnestly over the last 2,000 years. My brother and sister in Christ, we need that same, that same energy, that same commitment. Because I'll tell you what, we live, we live in a generation, we live in a time and age where the Bible is being attacked on every front. We live a time where literally uh, 
the, the, the core family unit of, of the United States of America is being dismantled right before your very eyes. The things that are happening. And we've got to contend earnestly. We can never become Christians who allow us, you know, to, to go along that woke thing and don't allow any, no confrontation or anything like that, just accept everything. No, you can't, you've got to stay. Listen, culture changes, things in culture changes, but the faith, the New Testament doesn't change. Amen? It is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and it is applicable in every culture at every time. So we can't stand back. We must fight. Now, I'm putting up wrestling. You do know that's an imagery, right? Don't go wrestle, people. I'm not talking about violence. (laughs) Don't tackle people on the street and start wrestling. No, don't do that. The idea is we don't use violence. And we're certainly not disrespectful. And we're not ugly. And we're not obnoxious. But we do contend. And we contend with wisdom. And with the power of the Holy Spirit. You talk through these things with people. By the way, don't let that be a picture of how you treat another Christian. We're supposed to love one another, not wrestle each other. Now, you know as well as I do that even with the New Testament and the closed canon, there are many different denominations of of Christians and churches throughout history. And so, yeah, there are different interpretations. There have been disagreements among Christians for years, but not over the essentials. Christians can disagree about church government. I would say they can even disagree over um, modes of baptism, though I strongly believe in immersion. Christians disagree about spiritual gifts. Christians disagree about end-time scenario. Christians disagree uh, about, oh, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, and they've been trying to fight and work that out. Listen, you can't figure that out. Nobody's been able to figure that out. Don't beat your brother up. Don't spend all of your energy wrestling brothers and sisters in Christ. Learn to show tact and love and respect and join arms with your brothers and sisters in Christ in wrestling against the real enemies. Amen? So contend earnestly. Now, why does he write this? Because the faith was under attack. Right there in the early part of the church, false teachers, verse 4, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men. Who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So much of this book, as you're going to see as we study, 
Jude describes these guys. But I just want you to notice how he describes them in verse 4. First of all, he calls them ungodly. Certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men. That describes false teachers. False teachers are ungodly. Now that doesn't mean that they, they don't say they know God and worship God. It's not that they disavow God. It's just that they live lives that are ungodly. They don't live righteous. They don't care about pleasing God. They live lives of sin. So the false teachers may talk a good game, but if you examine the way they live, they'll be characterized by ungodliness. By the way, I mentioned Joseph Smith. Did you know that he died at the age of 38? By a gunshot wound. When when he started his his little thing, his little religion, um, it, it broke apart. There were many factions. They split. And the breakup of his religion was a lot like the breakup of a cartel family. There were riots and violence and attacks. And eventually he and another guy were in this prison And one of these factions sent people, shot him dead in the prison. The age of 38. Suffering bloody. And by the way, we don't know for sure, but Joseph Smith had somewhere between 40 and 50 different wives. Most of them between the age 13 and 18. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a sex cult to me. By the way, have any of you seen The Sound of Freedom yet? You need to go see it. Most wicked things. Exploiting children, exploiting little girls. Doesn't sound like godliness to me. Muhammad had 11 wives. His life was characterized by bloodshed and violence. Charles Taze Russell. Okay, he had one wife. Good for him. But their marriage lasted 18 years. She divorced him for mental cruelty. Charles Russer was also a false prophet. He's the one who predicted that Jesus would come and the end of the world would happen in his lifetime. And, it, and it, it, the date came and went. False teachers are ungodly. They also creep in unnoticed. The, the language here in verse 4 is that these are guys, they're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing, and they slip in through the side door and embed themselves in a church congregation and then talk the talk. But they're false teachers meaning to deceive. I've said it before, um, they, they don't announce themselves. They don't wear name tags. Hi, I'm your friendly neighborhood false teacher. They're sneaky, gang. They're sneaky. They're stealthy. They don't identify themselves as wolves right away. Jude says in verse 4, they're marked for condemnation. Woe to the false teacher who leads people astray. Woe to that man or woman. They are marked 
for condemnation. They may go unnoticed to people, but God notices. And I would add to the list, I would say that they are satanically influenced. Whether they know it or not. See, Satan is the father of lies. Satan hates the truth. Satan hates when you know the truth. Satan is always trying to twist truth, pervert truth. And he has his people who go out into the world and try to deceive and keep people from the truth. So those guys were creeping into those churches back then. They still creep into our churches today. Please listen, my brother and sister in Christ, you can't trust someone just because they have a Christian book in a Christian bookstore or because you hear them in a Christian podcast or they have their own YouTube channel or they preach in a church or you hear them on the radio or you hear them on TV or they speak in conferences. You can't trust that. If you're going to contend earnestly for the faith, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. My friend, you've got, you've got to be able to rightly divide God's word for yourself. And Paul, and I love Acts 17, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness And they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So Paul spent time in Thessalonica and he gave the word to those people. They didn't really search anything. They just trusted Paul. Paul goes to Berea, shares the same thing. But the Bereans, man, they fact-checked Paul. They went and they searched the word. Now, if they had to check Paul... You have to check every preacher, and I willingly invite you to check me. I would never, ever want to lead astray in teaching the word of God. And if there is something I have misunderstood, I need to be corrected. But you have, we've got to have a good, solid understanding of the scripture. I want you to notice a couple of their false teachings and lifestyles. By the way, bad theology is always married to bad behavior. If you got bad theology, you're going to have bad behavior. Two very popular thoughts. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness. Now, I can't think of anything more horrific. False teachers turn. It's a a Greek word that means they they twist. They take scripture and they, they pervert it. And so you have this wonderful word in scripture called grace. God's unmerited favor that he put. I mean, we, were, we're, we have no hope without the grace of God. It's by the grace of God that he sent his son to make it possible for us to be forgiven of our sins. And these false teachers 
we're turning grace into one of the most disgusting words you'll find in the New Testament, lewdness, which means a complete uh, sinfulness, excess, complete lack of moral restraint, debauchery, drunkenness, revelry. So here's what they would do. They would say, look, God is a God of grace. He's got to forgive you. Do whatever you want. Live any way you want. Doesn't matter. Okay, you, you've got saved, you, but you're under grace now. There's, there's absolutely no moral law for you anymore. You're not under any type of law whatsoever. Live however you want. What they did was they were gutting the faith of its moral imperatives. They altered Christian liberty. They changed and transformed it into carnal license. And it was very popular. That's a very popular thing for some people. It's very appealing. Oh, I can become a Christian and sleep around, do whatever I want. Oh, I can become a Christian and live in this sinful way. Oh. But that's not true. And it's been very popular throughout the last 2,000 years. It's not true. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it. There's one theologian writes, free grace gives no license for sin, but rather provides resurrection power for a new life of righteousness. Gang, if you understand grace, by grace, God has saved you. And by grace, he's transformed you. He didn't save you from sin so you could keep on sinning. He saved you from sin to empower you to live a life of righteousness, to live a different life. Salvation, man, it's radical. It's supernatural. You become born again, a temple of the Holy Spirit, empowered to change. And that's one of the greatest testimonies of our lives as Christians. You live differently. So it's a terrible, terrible doctrine. You notice also that they turn the grace of God into lewdness and they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of things that could mean. First, they deny the true Jesus of Scripture, which is very common among cults. Islam has a different Jesus. The Jehovah Witnesses have a different Jesus. The Mormons have a different Jesus. But it's most likely that these are teachers that deny the authority of the Lord. And this would match, again, with their idea of turning grace into lewdness. So these are people that say, man, Jesus is your Savior. But you don't have to, he doesn't have to be your Lord. You can do whatever you want. You can live, you can still be your own Lord. 
which leads to all kinds of horrific type of living. Now we have to fight against that. We have to fight against that. Because that is not true salvation. That is not how Christians are supposed to live. In fact, false teachers with that type of teaching, they can take out a whole local church. They can take out a whole Christian movement. They can lead people astray. They can give some people a false sense of security and salvation, thinking that they're saved when they're really not. Last week, you remember, we collected all these different details of what true born-again Christians are like. Man, born-again Christians live to bring praise to the Lord. They're humble, and they are bondservants of Jesus Christ. That's a real Christian. False teaching wrecks all that. Wrecks it. Perverts it, twists it. We saw last time together that Christians are called by God. And that call involves activity. We're summoned to duty. We're summoned to be good witnesses. We're summoned for judgment. One day we'll stand before the Bema seed and have to give an account of the way we lived our life. We're invited to the celebration. We're sanctified. Man, we are called to be holy. We're set apart. We are to be radically different. False teaching wrecks all that. Stagnates everyone who believes that. Can blow up a whole church. So Jude says... Contend earnestly, wrestle, struggle, stand up and tell the truth. Stand up and protect the faith that was delivered once and all for all the saints. Others have gone before and they've done it and now it's our generation and we need to do it. And it's worth it because you know what? Salvation's valuable. It's the greatest thing. We, we know the greatest truth. I take you again to this beautiful picture of salvation and how it's by f- what Christ did and came, left heaven, became man and all the beauty of it and went to the cross and bore our sin and rose again the third day. And when you put your faith in trust, all of your sin goes away. You aren't saved by your effort. You're saved by grace. Yet at the same time, he fills you with his spirit. He makes you born again. He transforms your life. He changes you. That's worth protecting. God's truth is worth defending. Amen? In every culture, in every age. So I would call you to fight the good fight. Contend earnestly. By the way, what side are you on? Have you moved over 
to salvation yet. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. You thought, man, I could just, if I could just be better than the next guy, I'll get good enough. I can work my way to heaven. You can't jump across. You need a bridge. Everyone needs a bridge. And Jesus is your bridge. Jesus will save you to the uttermost and change your life. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Lord, we thank you for the miracle of salvation. We thank you for the the, the wonder and awe of what you have done for us at the cross. Lord, and it's a truth that is revolutionary. It changes lives. It gives us eternal life. Hmm. Lord, remind us tonight that truth is worth fighting for. It's worth defending. And you've called all of us to it in some way. I pray that we would come to know your word better and better. I pray that you would teach us how to uh, confront, debate, speak out with tact and wisdom and discernment. Make us effective. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to do this alone. We have a church. We have brothers and sisters in Christ from whom we can get training and encouragement and help and prayer support. Oh, Lord, I thank you for like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you that we share these things. Lord, I also want to, uh, so I pray, Lord, that you would give us courage and strength, wisdom to do these things. Lord, I also want to pray for anyone here tonight who's never received you. Maybe that, maybe you're here tonight and you never knew that all of your sins could be forgiven, washed away, gone because of the Savior who died for them. Jesus died for you and he rose again and he's alive. He's here. Where two or three gather in his name, he's there. He's right here. And he can save you to the uttermost. But you have to receive him. You have to open your heart. You have to invite him. He won't force his way in. So right now, if you've never done that, I want you to invite him right now. If that's your heart, you cry out to him. You say, Lord Jesus, I open my heart to you. I bow. I surrender. You're the king of kings. You're the savior. You're the one who died for me and rose again. And so I bow. I humble myself. I confess my sins. 
Thank you for dying for me in my place. Thank you for your grace. So right now, be my Lord and Savior and make me born again. Fill me with your spirit. Make me a brand new person. In Jesus' name, amen.